Father, we thank you for this time together. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that we have uh, in the body of Christ to be able to come together to study your word, to learn from each other, and to learn from your spirit working in us and among us. And pray that he would be with us today, making much of Jesus as we look back at the early work that you have done in the church and in the world, bringing the gospel to those who are in great darkness. I pray that we would be both encouraged and challenged by what we read today and, and our discussion that we have this morning. And that each of us would walk away with hearts that are um, drawn toward, toward the beauties and the excellencies of Jesus, that he's worth any sacrifice that we could make to bring the gospel of hope to a dying world. We thank you for that in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 14. Acts 14, starting in uh, verse 8. Last time, uh, Luke, and earlier in chapter 14, 1 through 7 last, last time, Luke told us about the mission to Iconium. And while it started well, eventually they were driven out by uh, the threat of a plot to stone Paul. There was a threat of a plot. He got wind of it and he left uh, because it was getting uh, dangerous to stay. Uh, this week, Luke takes us to their next stop in Lystra. And in Paul's day, Lystra was a small country town surrounded by mountains. Um, it was a military outpost about 100 miles from Pisidian Antioch. Uh, and because of its status in the empire as a colony, there was a road that was actually built between Pisidian Antioch and Lystra, about a 100-mile road that they, that they had um, developed. And so there's even archaeological evidence of a, of a statue that was given by Lystra to Antioch that showing the camaraderie between these two outpost cities. Um, and, uh, and so there's, there's a, a, a lot of history between Antioch and Lystra uh, at this time. So in Lystra, we have really the first town where there's no synagogue. There's no significant Jewish presence. So it's like straight up pagan Gentile and they're walking in. Um, and, and, so, and so here we go. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. We're going to stop there. I've divided this section that we're doing today into four things. I went very Baptist with it. It's, it's the miracle, the message, the mob, and the mission. There it is. The miracle, the message, the mob, and the mission. There it is. All right, I'm sorry. It's just, it hit me as if in a dream. It was in a Baptist fog last night. There it was. So. All right, so does this miracle, this guy uh, being healed, this lame guy being healed, does this sound like anything that we've seen before in Acts? What, what, what does it bring to mind to you? Anything in, in, in previously that we've seen? Was that the, the beautiful gate? Was that beautiful the, gate, very good. It's, who, was, who was at the head of that one? Peter. Peter was. Peter and John. Peter and John. Silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee. Senable, I did old King James on that one. <laughs> so there it is. What's wrong with that? Um, 
there's a there's a a, a theme that you that we that we see in Luke's writing of Paul's missionary journeys that seems to pull the stories from that are very similar to what Peter did. He's drawing the comparison between what God did with Peter as an apostle to the Jews and what Paul is doing uh, what God is doing with Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. God's working similarly in both mission fields, right? That that's kind of the idea that you see some of this. There there's the 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 man that was healed at the beautiful gate leapt up and walked about when he was healed, just like this guy, right? Um, Luke is showing that God was with Paul just as he was with Peter. There's a major difference here. And the major difference is the language that Luke uses, the way it's translated, gives me, I, I get a little of a clemptum, I'm connected to Zoink on that. I get a twitch in my right eye when I see this because it says, he sees faith that the guy could be made well. And I'm like, hmm, that's real charismatic. What's going on there? This, 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 he can sense this faith thing. Jesus. But he's not Jesus. So how's, how, what does that mean? What is Luke talking about there? The Holy Spirit's already in. Yes. What is, he, what, is, what is he talking about there? This, how does he see faith in this guy? What, what's the context of what's going on here? He's preaching. He's preaching, presumably sharing the gospel. We're not told what he said. And what's the guy doing? He's listening. He's listening. And it's in the context of the listening that Paul sees this faith. I don't know if the guy was doing this or, you know, <laughs> raise that hand, brother. I don't know what he's doing. But for some reason, he senses, he gets this impression this guy is believing. He's starting to trust this. He's starting. And what's the response of Paul to, to that? What is he moved by the Spirit to do? Stand up and walk. The interesting thing is, that word for made well, that he had faith to be made well, I, it bothers me. So I, the focus here seems to be on the healing, that he be made well, the faith to be healed. But every other time, I looked it up, I did a little word study, I went geeky Greek on you, there, there, the word there, sosthenai, so, sothenai is what it is, is a, sosthenai is what I'm saying, sothenai is a, um, is a word that, that everywhere else, other, the other nine places it's used in the New Testament, it means be saved. So he had faith to be saved is another way to translate that. But every English translation I mean, ESV, the NESB, the King James, the NIV, all say to be made well. They, they push it to the healing. I don't know why they do that. Maybe it's because that's what happened. They felt that's the context. I don't want to impugn their character. Or whatever. It just seems to me that the faith that he's seeing is one of believing, not in the gospel that he's preaching, rather than the healing. And the healing is, again, we've seen this again and again. Why do we have miracles in Acts? What's going on there? What are they used for? To point to Christ, to point to the Word. So again, God graciously allows Paul to be a part of a miraculous event to confirm the message, the truth of the message. Is the name Jesus ever used in Paul? Because Peter says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Does Paul say that? No. Paul never, it, we're not given that in, in Luke's account of it. <clears throat> we know that's what's going on. Because we've read 
about the other cities and in Jerusalem what they were doing. We know where the power is coming from. These pagan Gentiles don't. No, but, I mean, we don't know what Paul was preaching, though. I mean, if he was <clears throat> laying in the gospel and he was lifting up Christ's name, and then in the middle of lifting up Christ's name says, you know, stand up and stand walk. Up and walk. They, but again, the language says he did, not, he did not say in the name of Christ, do this. I mean, right. he specifically calling in the power of Jesus to do this. Even if he had, what's the response? They're like, oh, look, the God's little genie. Right. They feel him. Right. So you've got a real conflict of worldviews here, right? Um, uh, Paul's not healing the guy. Jesus is. But you wouldn't really get that from the narrative here. And the pagans in Lystra have no background in the narrative. And so we look at verse 11, how they respond. Um, let's see where's... Okay. It says... And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So there's the message. How do the pagans and Lystra respond? How do they, what do they do? They're gods. They're, they're, there's a miracle that happens right here. And what gods do they, do they uh, assign them to be? Greek gods. The Greek gods. That's very uh, understandable. This is the culture that they live in. They're a Hellenized society. Um, there is a story, a legend, stuff of which legends are made, a legend, uh, Ovid, uh, I think, wrote uh, in, in his uh, collection of poetry, Metamorphosis, he tells a story of Zeus and Hermes coming down in the likeness of men looking for hospitality. And they seek it and seek it and seek it, and everybody in the region rebuffs them, rejects them, except an elderly couple who takes them in and feeds them to their own hurt. They don't eat, they serve these guests. So they show true hospitality, sacrificial hospitality. Zeus and Hermes identify themselves, raise up a temple where these guys are for them to serve in this beautiful golden temple that they have. They reward them, basically. And then they, they call down a flood to everyone else in the region and kill off all their neighbors who didn't show them hospitality. So there is this amazing story of be hospitable to strangers that look like gods. Right? 
The way that that story has come about, uh, the archaeologists have traced it back, it's in this region. And in fact, some of the inscriptions in the Lystra uh, region, uh, uh, the, uh, the Phrygia, all that, like Lyconium region, that whole area, they have these kinds of stories everywhere of Zeus and Hermes being there and, and you know, people being judged for not showing them hospitality and all this kind of stuff. There are inscriptions, two inscriptions were found, and both of them giving honor to Zeus and Hermes. This is their worldview. This is, this is part of their whole understanding of reality, is this narrative. There are a bunch of gods, sometimes they come down, and if we treat them well, we get rewarded. If we don't, we, we swim with the fishes, you know, whatever. That's the worldview. And so when they see this, Paul's saying, we're men just like you. First of all, they don't understand what's going on because they're talking in their own dialect. And apparently Paul and Barnabas don't quite understand what's happening initially. But you kind of get an inkling when the priest starts bringing bulls with these like little cotton garlands around their neck, these decorated things. This is a planned, orchestrated, let's do sacrifice kind of stuff. They get that. Whoa, what's going on? So Paul starts telling them, we're men just like you. And he tells them all this stuff about the one true God, right? Do you find it odd that if they believe that they're gods, why wouldn't they listen to what they were saying? <laughs> the worldview is so ingrained. It's so true. And it's, it's human nature, really, isn't it? I mean, we like religion when we can manipulate it. We like it when we can carve a god in our own image and make him do dance in you know, the bobblehead Jesus that, that, that Philip talks about on Sunday morning sometimes. We like that. And why are they doing this? They're doing it because in their, in their worldview, if you please the god, he'll reward you. They want a reward. They want a golden temple in their honor. Right? Um, we're not told why they thought Barnabas was Zeus. We're, we're kind of told that the focus really may have been on Paul because Paul was the one doing the talking. Hermes, if you, if you remember your um, Greek mythology from, from grade school, Hermes was the, the god of oratory, the god of speech, that kind of thing. And so um, that's uh, probably why they, they assigned Hermes to Paul because he was doing all the talking, apparently. Um, so this is the lens in which they see the world. Show honor to the gods and they will reward you, dishonor them and they destroy you. And they can't get past, this must be the source of the miracle. It's got to be Zeus and Hermes. It's just got to be, right? How far does this go? Um, we're told that they bring these, the, the priest brings these sacrifices. This is not a spur of the moment deal. I mean, these are prepared to only the best for the gods, you know, kind of thing. There, there are wreaths involved. Um, how do Paul and Barnabas respond to this? This is, you know, if you're going to accommodate the culture, this isn't a bad accommodation, right? If you're going to try to be all things to all men, to... You don't be gods to men. 
<laughs> well, what's the problem with that? I mean, this, this is what they believe. Uh, who are we to, isn't the prime directive here, you know? And, <laughs> What 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 is what do they do? What do they do? I'm such a geek. I know it's awful, isn't it? It's okay. <laughs> they tear their clothes. Why would they do that? It's a sign of what? Yes, it is. It's a very ancient sign, actually. Blasphemy, mourning, agony, so distress. Those are the three ways that, that tearing the ripping the clothes is used as a sign in the Old Testament. It's a very traditional Jewish thing to do, or, or Semitic thing to do, to rip the clothes to show that either you are uh, grieving, loss of a loved one, you're in distress, uh, Job, was it something, and then, or you're protesting blasphemy. Those are the ways that that's used. Obviously, what are they doing here? That's a blasphemy issue. They're so... Um, I guess, moved by the, the struggle of not bringing dishonor to God's name, that it, it causes them, we've got to protest this. We gotta, we're men just like you. They immediately go to that. Um, all right. Well, two, maybe would, would a God well, do that? I mean, that's ancillary, obviously. Right, but, yeah. But, you know, it's like, oh, they're, they're tearing their clothes. Why are, why are we doing are they Are they trying to reveal this glory thing yeah. going on? Is it going to start shining? Or? Yeah. Well, I think it was that region, the Middle Eastern region. I, think, I don't think it's just Jewish. I think other cultures did it. But I figure that they would at least know. There would be, yeah, they probably would know that, that, that uh, deal. Have we seen recently in Acts any danger of accepting homage as a god? Can we think of any kind of guy in purple with a crown on his head in front of a bunch of people chanting something that happened? Something about worms. Something about worms. Was that, was that already Herod? That was Herod, right? Recently in the narrative of Acts, it is the voice of, a, of God and not a man. And he takes it and he dies of worms about a week later. <clears throat> Obviously a man. That's a rough way to go. Think about that. Um, don't think about that. Well, don't think about it. Yeah, just, just don't take the homage. Yeah, um, right. So Paul explains his protest of blasphemy in the form of a mini-sermon. And this is the first recorded sermon to a purely pagan audience. These are people who have never heard of the God of the Bible. They don't know Jesus. They don't know anything. They know Zeus, Hermes, and the panoply of gods that they have in Greek mythology. How would you begin? What do you, what do you, where do you start? In the beginning, you got to build a bridge somehow, right? What does he do? What does he do in verse uh, fifteen? Where does he start? We're just like you. We're just like you. What? And and then where does he start with presenting to them the worldview of Christianity? Bringing you the good news. The good news. The one God who made all of them. The one good. Who made all the things. So he starts with monotheism, right? He starts with there's only one God. Monotheism, specifically the living God, and worshiping idols is vain. Right? He starts there. What does he tell him about this one God? First he thing he says, everything. he made everything. He wasn't made. The gods in, of Greece were created or, or, or spawned out of the stuff. God creates everything. He is the one true God who has created everything. 
He's a creator of all life. How does how does Paul describe creation here? What is what is he? Does that seem familiar to you? From Genesis on, that's the way it's described, the threefold uh, representation of creation. Um, and so again, he's challenging their understanding of how creation is, how, the, how reality is. Um, he starts by challenging their assumptions about the world around them. And what else does he say? Verse 16, how does he describe God's treatment of Gentiles to now? What does he say? He let them walk in their own way. What does that mean? What could he have done? What should he have done? I say should. What was he, uh, what was appropriate for him to do? To pass judgment on them. But he allows them to continue. So he talks about God's mercy and his forbearance and the sin of the Gentiles. He's a creator of all things. He, he owns everything, right? He's God. He's king over creation. And he... Instead of exercising judgment of you not honoring the one true God and worshiping these vain idols, he's allowed you to continue. He has allowed, he's, he's shown mercy and forbearance to you. Um, what's the implication, though, by saying that? All of the gods you worship are not real. All the gods you worship are not real. He has allowed you beforehand to, to continue and not judge you yet. But there will come a day. But there will come a day. And what's the day? What, are, what, are they, what is he now saying? He's saying, I'm telling you about him. You got no excuse. I'm here to tell you who the one true God is. The, the, you had no revelation. Now you did. You did not know the true God. Now I'm revealing him to you. But they're not completely without excuse, are they? What does he say next? He did not leave himself without witness. What's the, what's the witness that he did not leave himself? Yes. Before that. Well, but before the that. Prophets. The prophets, but they never heard of the prophets. What's he talking about? The book of creation. The book of creation, general revelation. Nature. All the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above declare his handiwork. There is no voice, there are no words where their speech is not heard. That is common understanding in the biblical worldview. Creation declares the glory of God. Men are without excuse. We know of his eternality and of his, um, and of his uh, eternal power. His presence and his power. So you have then God's, there's only one God, God is merciful. Then in, in verse 17, you have God's works. Not only has He given Himself a witness in creation, He has allowed that creation and uses that creation to do what? Fruitful season and the rains. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Instead of condemning you and destroying Instead of you, condemning you, live and be fruitful. He's allowed you to live and be fruitful and to survive. And he puts rain and grows food, and, he, and it's not just enough, it satisfies the soul. He's generous. He's creator God. He's merciful and not judging. And on top of that, you who are in rebellion against creator God, he is merciful and he's giving and generous to you. 
God has been sending the rain and causing the crops to flourish. Harvest brought plenty of food to nourish the body and feed the soul. Okay, that's awesome. How does that reconcile with Romans 1? Romans 1 says, men are without excuse. They're condemned by creation. Right? And instead of recognizing God as eternal and powerful, they worship the creature rather than the creator. So how is Paul making a different conclusion here? Are these contradictory arguments? He's showing God's treatment of them versus man's, evil man's reaction to God. Right. Here, here's part of the problem. He doesn't get to finish. Right. <laughs> He's beginning the bridge to who God is. He didn't get to finish. Why can't he finish? Because the Jews can't start. Well, not yet. Not yet. We'll get there in a minute. That's actually a little bit later. There's still a mob. They're still wanting to kill bulls for some reason, even though they're ripping their clothes saying, we're just men. They're still wanting to kill the cows. Even with this, there's only one God. So, by definition, two of us can't be gods, Right? There's only one God. They can't stop them. They, they, they had a hard time restraining them from this blasphemous act, even with this going on. The difference with Romans 1 and what's going on here is that he's trying to make a bridge connection with them on who God is. He's talking about the nature of God. What Paul is doing in Romans is, is drawing from the same fact God has created, and it's a witness to who He is. He's showing in Romans 1, all men are condemned because they should know God from that witness. And what's the, what's the condemnation? He's kind, He's merciful, He's forbeared, and you still worship creatures. That's, that's where the circle comes. And we'll see in this sermon in Lystra is kind of a test run for Luke, of what actually happens in Mars Hill. It's the same sermon, but Paul gets to finish it on Mars Hill, and we see that he does exactly that. You should repent, because instead of being the kindness of God driving you to repentance, you've gone off in this vain stuff, and you're condemned already because of it. Chasing after vain things rather than chasing after Christ, you're condemned already. Um, but they're cut short by these very enthusiastic pagans. And they're not able to get to Christ and repentance at this time. Um, all right. Again, they think they're gods. Why won't they listen and believe what they're saying? Because they just the rule. This is the inconsistency of a sinful worldview, right? As long as it fits with what we want, we'll bend logic to get to what we want. And that's what they're doing here. Unless we can manipulate it to our own will and desires, we really have nothing uh, to do with it. So what, so what happens then? Let's look at verse 19. So they were able to, it seems like they were able to restrain them from sacrificing. But then in verse 19 it says, I mean, you, you hear the, like the empire music in the back. Dun, dun, dun. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, 
he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Let's stop there. So, how long between let's kill bulls in their honor to let's stone him? What do you think? However long it took the Jews to get there. <laughs> However long it took the Jews to get there. What's a key thing in here that lets us know this? Probably a little bit longer than like 30 minutes. They came from Antioch and Iconium. Yes, and what else? Persuaded the crowds. Okay, it took some time to persuade them, although, you know, sometimes that happens a little faster than others. Who surrounds Paul? The disciples. Disciples. Where'd they come from? Did they just manifest out of the ground? Antioch and Iconium? The idea here is that there are disciples that they have already got in Lystra. So they've been here a while. These are guys that heard the message, believed there was some uh, response. Certainly the guy that healed, that got healed. Uh, and so Lystra also has uh, uh, some pretty famous Christians um, like Timothy. Yeah, he, he's from here, uh, and his mother and his grandmother were all from Lystra. So there's a, there's a pocket of believers here that is in Lystra. And so the idea is that they've been here a while. When got to the apparently uh, Antioch and Iconium, that, you know, Paul's over here if you still want to stone him. So they come over, and Jews incite Gentiles against another Jew. That's an interesting uh, little little thing. Um, maybe, maybe there was a working off of the long-standing relationship between Antioch and Lystra. Maybe that maybe that kind of uh, relationship played into um, them being able to stir up the mob. Whatever that means, the effect of, uh, is mob violence, and Paul is dragged out of the city and left for dead. They think he's dead. On that, he was stoned inside the city and then dragged out. Isn't that backwards from how it normally happens? Well, in in, well, in Jewish, Jewish culture, culture, yes. Okay. But here it's like, Whatever. you know, they... And in Jewish culture, they put them below a cliff, right? Mm -hmm. Roll, Roll the rock on top of them, yeah. On top of them. Right. No, it's not the stone's fault. It's the user. <laughs> um, all right. Where's Barnabas? <laughs> Where is he's Barnabas? Not, he's encouraging somebody else. <laughs> yeah, he's encouraging. So I'm going to go over here and encourage. We're not told. Uh, the idea is maybe Barnabas was and Paul were split up doing some things, and they found Paul alone. And since he was the one that talked the most and probably a little bit more abrasive, they don't want to kill Zeus. Want to kill Zeus. <laughs> Hermes, Hermes, he talks too much. So, um, so there's, there's. There's some, there's some speculation there about Barnabas. But nevertheless, God protects Saul, protects Paul uh, from death after a stoning. Does he still get stoned? I mean, is he still hit with rocks? Yes. Did that hurt? Oh, you better believe it. Well, they thought he was dead. And they think he's dead. He's probably unconscious. And yet God protected him in the midst of the pain of that very violent act against him. And he's alive. Uh, he talks about this. I mean, he, he talks in, in, in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, verse 10, he says, talking to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, 
Verse 11, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, and yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Another, uh, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about, I, I was beaten with rods three times, I was shipwrecked, I was stoned once. You know, he goes through the litany of this stuff. This is a pretty significant event, as you could imagine being stoned would be. He remembered it, and he talked about it. Uh, one, of the, one of the disciples that may have surrounded uh, Paul here may have been Timothy. Um, incidentally, do you see anybody tearing their clothes over this stoning? Does, does, oh no, Paul stoned. Rip your clothes, you know. Hermes is, <laughs> Hermes is gone. What are we going to say? No, they don't do any of that. I just found it very interesting that their focus on protest, grief, and, and, and distress was for the name of God and not for the safety of Paul. That, that's, the, that's the core thing for them, that God be honored in the midst of this. I mean, we, we're not told. They, they could have, but we're not told. Luke didn't think of it, uh, didn't, didn't see it as significant if it did happen to put it in here. So, what do you see from the text that they did next? They kept going. To a they kept going. <laughs> to, not only did they go, no, well, they, they didn't say that. Uh, there is a witness there in Lystra, and these are Gentiles, so there's, there's not that going on. He gets up, he's alive, and Derby's a 60-mile journey from Lystra. <laughs> That's several days walking after you've been stoned. That's a little miraculous and, and speaks to Paul's dedication to the mission. He rested when he got there. Yeah, he probably took a few days in Derby before they started talking. So they had, uh, let's see, in verse 21. Uh, okay, but, but when the disciples gathered around him, verse 20, he rose up and entered the city on the next day. He went on with Barnabas to Derby. They went the next the next morning is the idea there. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And we're going to stop there for today. So, what are they doing the next day? They're going to the they're going to Derby. They're going on a sixty mile hike. That seems like a good idea. Is that natural? No. No, that's not natural. That's counterintuitive to go to another city, preach the gospel, and possibly get stoned again. That's not natural. Um, instead, they leave to go, they leave the next morning because it's no longer safe for them in Lystra. They head for Derby and they travel 60 miles. Did they lay low when they got there? No. No. What do they do immediately? They start preaching, again, a place where there's no synagogue, apparently, because it doesn't indicate that they go to one. They start preaching. And what happens? There's a God's gracious, and He saves people in that city through the preaching of the gospel by Paul and Barnabas. If they had wanted to, they could have kept going that southeast loop uh, and, and, and back to... Uh, and back to Tarsus, Saul's hometown, and a 150-mile journey total, they could have been back to Antioch where they started, Syrian Antioch. But they don't. I mean, that would have been easier, but they don't do that. <clears throat> we'll see next week. They choose to go back through all the cities that they've been through 
to encourage, to nurture, to feed the, 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 the congregations that had been built in the cities that they had just gone through. They're, they're doing follow-up. How many times do we not do follow-up? How many times? I, I, I will... Well, I mean, okay. There, I'll make it quick. There was, uh, a, several years ago, I, at, an, at another, another uh, congregation far, far away, uh, that, that we'd gotten word of a guy who had one of those little gospel cubes. You know what I'm talking about? Little things. This is the way to work through the gospels, this little cube, and just pray this prayer kind of thing. He had gone door to door. It's very, I mean, you've got to give him credit for the, the zeal. He'd go door to door and just, come on, just, just say this with me. Just say, if you even think, just say this with me, kind of thing. And so he had, but the deal was, say this with me, and I won't put you on any list. I won't tell any churches that you've done it. I just encourage you to go to a church on your own. So there's this go through and get all these people to do this little rote confession thing. And he started, rightfully, feeling guilty about that because nobody, he could not, based on what he had represented to them, could not go back and bother them anymore to encourage them, to disciple them, to do any of that. So he came and visited the pastor of the church to have our church somehow magically know that these people had confessed at one time and just invite them to church and try to disciple them. That's fraud. Why would we do that? Why would we be part of a fraudulent thing? We don't oftentimes in church, and I'm not talking about Sylvania, we're, we actually are very conscious of that, I think, of having follow-up. We, go, we, do, we don't do one-off mission trips very often. We have ongoing works in Cuba and other Philistines, and, uh, Philistines, and the Philippines, <laughs> and uh, Philistines too, if we can ever get there. Um, but, but ongoing, we go back. We want, that's part of the calling that we have is to make disciples, not just confessors. We want people to grow in grace. And so you see that model being laid out for us here with Paul and Barnabas as, uh, as they're traveling back through these cities. And it should be the model that we follow in our own evangelism. If you, if you, if you go on those spring break beach trips, you know, to go hit the beaches and share the gospel, and people are half stoned and somehow they believe. I don't know. But, but there's, there's those trips... There needs to be some kind of follow-up. There needs to be working with a local church so that they would have names and, and addresses and, and ability to contact these people. Because that's Paul had some amazing things happen. The first leg, the hard work comes going back through. Where are you now? Oh, we need to fix this. No, we, we live under the law of Christ. And we, won't, we don't act like you see Corinthians come out of that kind of stuff, right? So... Anyway, any, any questions on this? I know we're running out of time. Any questions on this? I don't think he was because they said they, the, Luke makes it very clear that thinking he was dead. He uses that language. So their belief was that he was, but Paul didn't say, or Luke didn't say he was dead, you know. I mean, there's been an argument about that. I, I, I lean toward the fact that he's just unconscious. Yeah. Probably, right. Because if you, I've never been near dead. 
Yeah. He was he was mostly dead. Yeah. No, the the um the the indication is that they they thought he was, but Luke doesn't commit to that he was. Um, I just thought it was interesting because it talks about when they drag him out of the city. He only rises up after the disciples gather around him. Right. So I Yeah. Yeah. Again, Luke is uh, frustratingly sparse with his words and doesn't tell us exactly what's going on. In verse 19, when it talks about the Jews persuading the the crowd, do you have some insight into what they were, what the crowd was? How did they change their minds? Because these guys were gods. Now let's go stone them. Well, it, it had been a while, so maybe the sheen had worn off a little right, bit. Right. Uh, when when uh, Paul is talking to them about you know the rest of Mars Hill sermon, right. maybe that rubbed them some a, a little bit wrong because the philosophers you had some mocking, some listening, and others believed. You know that's the way it works in, in Acts seventeen. So there's probably that same pattern going on here. The 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 line of argument for the Jews. Would be, um, you know, he's they're subverting your worldview. You, they're 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 claiming. Think of the money you're going to miss out from idol making, which is what the Ephesians guys were kind of, you know, working. I mean, there could be several arguments they make. Um, they're claiming that this Jesus is king. What's that going to put you at odds with the emperor? There, could, there, there are several, several different lines there that, that the Jews could have made. We're not told. Luke doesn't. And probably one of those or all of those they could have made. Whatever it was, it incited them to do a, a mob violence thing. Apparently they were really easily put into a whole mob mentality, period, because there's mob worship and there's mob you know, wickedness. I don't know I'm trying to go Baptist. But, um, so there, there's several things they could have done. I have a discernment question. Okay. So um, I know that you know everything happens, you know, because of the will of God or whatever. And if Paul used a little bit more discernment in saying, you know, through the power of Jesus, now stand up and walk instead of just saying stand up and walk, mm-hmm. do you think he could have avoided being stoned and all that? No, no, because by the by the time of the stoning, he probably. I mean, the indications are he had disciples and they had to know about Jesus. Well, by I mean, then. you know, instead of creating the mob like mentality like you mm-hmm. said so quickly by saying stand up and walk and all of a sudden these people think he's God mm-hmm. saying he could discern for a quick second instead of saying what he immediately thought thought for a second and said you know what if I use my language correctly mm-hmm. these people won't turn on me you know? I don't know I don't know that's that's a that's kind of a Cause I was thinking maybe the stoning was a punishment to Paul because of his lack of discernment um yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, I, was just I don't know. I think I think really the 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 takeaway there on the stoning is he's willing to go through anything because Jesus is worth it. Okay. And so I don't know that that's a discipline. I mean, obviously, any kind of hardship like that would be a disciplinary thing, even if he did nothing to yeah. deserve it. That's still, you know, how submissive am I going to be to the will of God? Mm-hmm. I I don't know that we can go that that because he didn't. Um, Say the right thing. Say the right yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I'm hesitant to go there. I do get caught up on some of the words I use. You yeah. Know, I'd always use my words wisely. Well, sure. There, that's that's just being mm-hmm. a, a, a good steward of your language and, and, and that. But at the same time, you kind of also have to realize that these guys, it's an inconsistent worldview. Exactly. 
and they're going to look for a reason to worship what they want and stone you when they don't want. I mean, you know. Well, they didn't know who Jesus was. Right. So even if you would have said it, it wouldn't help. It wouldn't. Yeah, maybe. 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 We don't, again. What, what would have prevented the Jews could, from coming and inciting the crowd against him anyway? Maybe that would have made it more likely. More likely. Maybe. Was it, was it Paul that when, when he first had the vision of Jesus, Jesus said to him, I will show you how much you must suffer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically promised himself. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna hurt. Yeah, he told him that early on. That was part of the deal. To, to me, the way, to me, the way I saw the stoning is he made a real good point about after the Jews had gotten there and started, you know, pushing dissension among the people at Iconium. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what pushed yeah. them to. I mean, how bitter do you have to be to travel 100 miles from Antioch? Really bitter. To, 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 to incite <laughs> Gentiles. They don't have anything better to do. I, I guess so. You know? He was a zealous Jew. That's Paul very well point. Exactly that, hunting down Christians. Yeah, that's true. You Going to Damascus. It's, it challenged their worldview. Mm-hmm. They knew, you know, if this took off, what was going to happen to the way they knew life as. Yeah. Life as we know it is no longer real. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a big deal. That's why they went. Yeah. There have been a lot of lead ups to this point too. I mean, you know, they've, you know, there've been countless times that they've they debated. Right. The Jews. So, yeah. Know, there's a lot of frustration here. Yeah, yeah. He got he was let out of the window in one place. He heard of a plot and left the other, and then finally they got him. Let's drag him out of the city and let the birds get him. And he's finally. Yeah. So. Which is actually kind of funny well, too. Yeah. Yeah. He's after me, so they stone him, and obviously the Jews are probably still in the city. I mean, he's dead. He's walks back in. Like, yeah. Hey, you know, and it's like you have to think if he walks back into the city, the Jews are probably thinking, What? Where's <laughs> Where's the rock? Let's try it again. Maybe so, Maybe the rocks are hard enough to somebody replace it with foam. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. The idea is that he went back in with Barnabas. They kind of went back in and then left as soon as they could the next day. Maybe. Maybe. But who does that remind you of, by the way? Who does that remind you of? People that are persecuted in one area, they're freed or protected by God, and then they immediately go back to that area and start, and, 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 and you know, in this case, they didn't preach the gospel. They went, yes, but I'm talking about Acts. In Acts. Do you remember Stephen. when Peter is, uh, and John are in prison the first time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're arrested in the temple grounds, they right? The and they get freed from the prison, and they go immediately back to the same place they just got arrested, preaching the gospel. Again, I think so Luke is. Do, arrest me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are not the apostles you're looking for. Uh, what are you going to do here? They're, they're, they've got Paul going back into the city. Just there's a boldness there. There's a boldness that again shows that these guys are filled by the Holy Spirit, given that kind of boldness. It's a challenge to us, isn't it? That's a challenge. All right, we're, we're, um, we're dangerously close to, to being in rebellion against the authorities that be on the time. So let me, uh, let me pray and we'll move on. God, thank you for heroes. Thank you that you have given us um, the body of Christ and the history of our people from the beginning um, testifying to the worth and the beauty of Jesus that they're willing to go through these hardships to preach the gospel of hope to a dying world. 
we ride on the shoulders of giants and we pray that we're inspired by them that we're drawn up into their tale that's our tale that's our story our narrative of the work of grace in the heart of sinners such that they prize Christ above all else would you make it so in each one of us that as you work out your story through us that we would have the boldness of the Holy Spirit to do things we never thought we'd be able to do to share the gospel to people who we, we have no inclination or hope that they're ever going to change that they're ever going to believe Jesus but we know what you've called us to do which is to make disciples among all the nations can we start here in Tyler would you give us boldness would you give us good stewardship of our words so that we speak a word in season and gracious to the hearers we ask for all these things in the, in the name of our King Christ himself it's in his name we pray amen have we already gotten to the story about where they 